let the games begin. This is the spot where your best friend's naked body was dumped. Hey, Dan, what would you do if uh, Al Pacino took you to a Alaskan dumpster and showed my body wrapped in garbage bags? I feel like I would beat him up. And does not right? the girl try and like almost attack him? Or no, that doesn't happen, right? No, she she's totally docile, like uh, much of the female characters in Insomnia. Um, yeah. What does Molly think about that, though? That's what I want to know. <laughs> the clap happened. We're cutting this part. <laughs> We'll come back to it. Okay, Okay, cool. Three, two, one. Welcome to Films Trace, a show that traces the life of a film or two from conception to production all the way to release and execution. My name is Chris. I'm Dan. And today we have our special guest, Molly. Thanks for joining us again, our good friend, Molly. Happy to be here. Uh, I also want to note that Molly <laughs> is our most featured guest on Film Trace. I think this is, is that official as of this count. episode? It's well, like, we were trying to count. Is it six? Is this my I think sixth this is the sixth is episode. Mm. She's been on every, well, yeah, every season. I was, and I was, except for the first season. one. Yeah, except for the first season. Wow. So six shows. Do you have a favorite, Molly, that you loved the most? No. Donnie Darko, Everyone. perhaps. Every, every time. <laughs> yeah, so there's it's Donnie amazing. Darko, Body Heat. Um, Body Heat was fun. Memento. Memento. Yeah. Uh, something with the devil. The, the devil may care oh, or something. The devil uh, may care, starring Tom Holland. Trial of Chicago Eight. Yeah, whatever. Trial of Chicago. Yeah. yeah. So. Chicago Seven. Whatever. Seven. Yeah. You know. Yeah, they didn't count seven. the eighth guy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyways. Um, Thank you so much, Molly, for joining us again. I can tell that you are just thrilled slash actually trapped in Dan's... She's, uh... she's in literally my bedroom. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so... Two feet to picture for anyone who's actually listening to this. Uh, Dan is sitting across from me on a frameless mattress. Uh, Classic. <laughs> and I am sitting in a blue rocking chair. <laughs> it's the only chair I have in my bedroom. Feet. Yeah. Yeah. The, both of those fit your vibes pretty yeah. accurately. Yeah, that's about right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, today, what are we oh doing? my gosh, we are into the existential thriller theme, and this time focusing primarily on David Fincher's The Game, starring Michael Douglas from 1997. This year is the 25th anniversary of said film, and we'll do a little teaser, twister, teaser, twister, at the end, what do we call it? Chaser. Chaser. Chaser film. <laughs> With the 20th anniversary of uh, Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. Um, maybe his most forgettable picture in the filmography. But um, nevertheless, it's got uh, Al Pacino screaming about garbage bags and naked bodies. So yes. we'll uh, dive into that after we begin um, first with the game. Um, Motley, why did you want to come on the episode that we were planning on doing for a while now about this movie? Oh, well, I feel like it was continuing my my uh, film bro uh, mm-hmm, thread mm-hmm. that I was trying to had have not done Fincher, still have not done a PTA, I guess. Um, it's coming. I feel like there's somebody else. There's, oh, it's um, it's Richard Kelly, which counts. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, I feel the game is. Um, 
I, I don't know. It's just like such a weird movie to me, like in a very fun way. And it's definitely like a, it's Fincher's like funnest film to me, which is, mm. you know, he's always very like, very. So right. I think this is just like a fun anomaly to me a little bit. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a strange one in his filmography, even if uh, like tonally and visually it, it fits his oeuvre pretty perfectly. Let's start as we are wont to do with the IMDb plot synopsis. Uh, you guys just in case. straight up reading yeah. the, like, we, plot synopsis from IMDb. Those are so chaotic. We can improv. Oh, yeah. No, it's, 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 I just uh, feel like they're so inconsistent. That's oh, they're absolutely. terrible. Usually, <laughs> That's yeah. why oh, it's okay. fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go for, okay. <clears throat> After a wealthy San Francisco banker is given an opportunity to participate in a mysterious game, his life is turned upside down as he begins to question if it might really be a concealed conspiracy to destroy him. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that, that one's actually pretty straightforward for a it's movie a that it's okay. I mean, yeah. I feel like you got to mention like, there's a lot missing in terms of his age, father's suicide, brother. I mean, you got to like throw some of that stuff in there, I feel like. So this was originally conceived. This is also like one of Fincher's only movies that was uh, a produced spec script, which I think is an interesting place to start because uh, the guys that wrote it, John Brancato and Michael Ferris, were pretty much only known uh, here in the mid-90s when the script came across Fincher's desk uh, because they had a very, very minor hit in 1995 with uh, The Net starring Sandra Oh, Gold. yeah. Um, and they used the same, I don't know if this is, I could not, I, dig, I dug, I could not find confirmation, but I don't think it's a coincidence then that you have the newscaster Daniel Shore uh, in The Net and then you also have him having arguably even larger presence in uh the game with that i mean for me anyways that it, that that was like the moment in the film where it really like kind of came alive when the when the news anchor is talking to michael douglas and you realize that shit's getting real that crs is not just uh a front for something else it's a little more mysterious than that I, we should probably start there like we usually do that's my experience my memory of the game is uh, just being completely enamored um, with it from that point onward as a, uh, I mean, 97, I was 14, uh, 13, maybe. Did you see it in the theater? Saw it in the theater with my older brother and just was freaking blown away. How about you is guys? This, is this PG-13? Oh, fuck, no, no. Oh, it's R? Uh, How did I yeah. see it? Oh, this is before, because before the Columbine shooting, you could go into the movie yeah. theater and you wouldn't check your IDs. Right. Yeah. Or so, you like, buy if you're 14, a ticket. 15, you could just go in and buy. You actually buy a ticket for a rated R movie. They wouldn't care. But right. after Columbine, they get all freaked out about it. Um, yes, I do remember seeing this in the theater. I don't remember what my reaction was, but I do remember getting the DVD probably in college. And it's one of those films that you just, I don't know, there's something so intriguing about it that you just watch it over and over again, trying to figure out what it's all about. Um, so, I've loved it. You know, since the DVD release, I would say probably. Well, what about you? Do you remember, did you see it when it came out? No. When did you see <laughs> it? <laughs> no, I was never in the theater to see this. Um, I don't remember. I I feel like mm. I probably saw it maybe in like like fifteen years ago or something. Yeah. Like the mid off. I'm yeah. not. I don't quite remember. Like I don't have, like. I'm sure I saw it on like 
HBO or cable, or I rented a DVD or got a DVD from the library, which Wiper refuses to. <laughs> the library? I've never checked out a book from the library. But it's free. Um, I know. So we get away DVDs. Um, yeah, no, I just remember also specifically the ending mm-hmm. is very indelible to me because it's so fucking. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, you go okay. for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll mark it clean no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> so bonkers. Like, that's what... I right. mean, the whole, like, thing, but, like, the ending is just, like, what? It's just... Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. just that's what some men so said. absurd and, like, comical, but just, like, oh, I don't even know how to explain it. But, yeah, I have a very indelible... Uh, that it's the ending for me that, like, makes it so memorable because that ending is like nutsola so right right and oh yeah we're, we'll we'll unwrap that for sure a little later on but let's start uh getting into how this came to be a david fincher film i'm curious did you how aware were you dan for instance that this was a fincher film because for oh, me I had no idea. yeah okay no idea. yeah this was like the burgeoning kind of moments for me of like understanding like what a a director did and like how they had like a stamp or a style on a movie and it was mm-hmm. really only because like i was so obsessed with renting and re-renting the alien films and <laughs> so alien 3 and then i remember seeing i mean i don't i don't, I, I cannot imagine going ha- having a similar trajectory with my own children but yes i saw 7 in the theater you um, saw with my seven older brother in the theater? Oh god, it fucking traumatized me. <laughs> wow, dude. Oh, yeah. Your kids are gonna I know, I know. <laughs> um but like I I I distinctly remember like connecting those dots between Alien 3, 7, the game. And especially because it's almost as if like the game is the tamest of the three, right? Yeah. And yet it's the it's also like Molly was kind of saying, it's the most most bonkers of the three as well. And I think that's part of what makes it um, stand out in his filmography is that it's ultimately a pretty subtle uh, film. If you look at it in conjunction with like the insanity that is like a, a, pr- a prison planet being the trilogy capper for a, <laughs> for like a sci-fi franchise. And then like a movie where Kevin Spacey plays a serial killer that, you know, bases his murders on the seven deadly sins. Like, a, a guy that gets embroiled in like a conspiracy that may or may not be fictional um, seems pretty low key. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it, it, the style does seem to me like. There does seem to be something in the game where we get like, yeah, it's a more subtle Fincher that you see a lot of, and like it's almost like the tone or the color coloring of the film becomes a little bit less. There's certainly bombastic scenes in the game, but a lot of it's pretty toned down. Like a lot of it reminds me of stuff in Gone Girl, mm-hmm. um, even Social Network. He does kind of make a turn here, I would say, from Seven, um, where it's a little bit more, I think, pulled back a bit. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys agree with that. I don't well, know if I, it feels do like. You, is this a is this a classic like film bro? read to you molly because you seemed pretty dead set on the outset of this whole conversation that this this movie's kind of insane oh i mean film bro read 
that this movie, like no, no, that no, the movie it just, seems oh what? it feels it feels very film roy to be like this movie in which a wooden clown has a key <laughs> that may like to call that subtle that seems well i think ridiculous. my whole point my purpose here is to point out <laughs> made by these film bro directors therefore because it, they automatically get elevated you know what i mean there's there's a different level of consideration and uh you know right. film bro right. lens that gets this gets applied to certain directors regardless yeah of yeah. what it is and i think that's the case with you know that applies here with fincher like mm. this movie is bonkers yeah but there's no other way to i don't mean bonkers like it's a. I mean, anybody who's seen it knows it's not like bonkers. Like, um, yeah, what makes it bonkers? Other than the the ending, ending, is it just that? I mean, it's the ending in context, I guess. I don't know. Like, it's it's just insane. Like, that's an insane way to end a movie. Because up until then, it sort of feels like a maybe traditional like noiry, like something like DOA, where someone's just like sort of chasing through the streets of San Francisco, trying to Mm -hmm. figure out what's going wrong. But yeah, the ending is, it's also the reason that Fincher doesn't like the movie, right? He stated that, like... Oh, Chris, so how did this become a movie that Fincher ended up <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think the big aspect of it that uh, I was able to grasp onto a lot more than previous... Because I don't think I've seen the movie in probably a decade. Yeah. And uh, it was just, like, like the Scroogeness of it all, like the Dickens influence... Uh, even if it's like just on like an ephemeral level feels really um, like overly obvious. Whereas like I wasn't keyed into that as a young person, younger person um, watching the film or even rewatching it like in college. But like, it really feels like this is one there's a great quote from back when the film came out. Uh, Fincher was profiled by the LA times and he was essentially saying that, um, uh, even though in 2014 he admitted that they didn't figure out the third act, he was really like kind of being combative in the press with critics about the ending um, back when it came out. And so he said, for instance, uh, is it any more, quote, is it any more far fetched than John Malkovich on top of a runaway fire truck in Con Air? Um, and then uh, an even more telling quote about the actual protagonist, Nicholas Van Orden, as portrayed by michael douglas in a very kind of like ebenezer scrooge-esque uh fashion uh fincher said in response to like the protagonist (laughs) okay okay um in response she's not lying (laughs) right uh in response to that idea of like the the kind of like a scrooge-like character that really doesn't have any true like development until that very end um he said quote i find people who are cold and aloof and wear it on their sleeves very likable what could be more honest (laughs) but like yeah i I mean this is a guy who uh whose family lived next door to george lucas growing up and like his dad took him to see american graffiti and then brought him next door to introduce him to george lucas and like at eight years old he knew that he uh not only wanted to be a film director but that it was like a a feasible career option. And so like, he's already on this path as a young kid to like arrogant town USA. And that's because that becomes like almost immediately in his twenties as a music video director and commercial director, um, 
his kind of personality stamp. But because he's so uh, calculated and persistent and persuasive, like he somehow still gains that foothold. And so, of course, he sees himself in Nicholas Van Orden, even in his mid 30s, making this film. And so, I don't know. That that's where I'm. I'm curious in this uh, lens of viewing the film 25 years after its release, maybe a decade or so after we've really um, uh, considered um, the the kind of auteur stamp of this. Do we like? How do we feel about Nicholas Van Orton? Because it it very much feels like, for me, anyways, I'm still all aboard for like the ride of it. Um, but and I've always been kind of uh, uh, biased in favor of like mid '90s thrillers. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how much do you, I mean since that's our theme this cycle, Dan. How how existential did you find it this time around? Um, I would say like the actual um, self reflection in this is not very deep. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the whole point of the movie is essentially that like, Oh, he realizes that there's more important things than being lonely and having lots of money. Right. Is that kind of the message at the end? I will yeah. say though, from a viewer reflection standpoint, Dan and I did rewatch this together. And mm-hmm. it was you have a deep seated fear that you'd, Maybe end up like a Nicholas Van Orton. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but like, yeah, minus like... the being very rich. <laughs> but <laughs> remember, but and I promised that if I he ever end up like that, I'd the game him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good that's a good promise. You know, just you know. But I, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It is a common fear among men that you'll end up totally <laughs> alone and isolated, uh, which men sometimes do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the existential part of this seems more in uh, Fincher's style and sort of the journey yeah. that he takes you on visually and the mood uh, of it. He, he, the, especially the um, the scene where he gets back to the house and the uh, neon paint and stuff like that. It's very disorienting, and it's sort of he's trying to put you in a place where you feel um, Michael Douglas's anxiety, uncertainty. I, I mean, the one thing he is very successful in doing is getting you to be at least a little bit empathetic with Michael Douglas, who's honestly a complete jerk and dirtbag. So I think in that sense, he's successful in getting us to sort of connect with the protagonist, putting us in that disorienting, disorienting sort of experience that he's going through. But to me, the existential part of this is pretty on the shallow side, I would say. There's mm-hmm. not like a philosophical uh, thesis uh, underlying this film. I'd be curious to see a, a, a draft of the script that was less indebted to like the plot mechanics of it all and more yeah. into like the character study side of it. But that's also part of like the appeal of... Uh, um, uh, you know, he he says when looking back in 2014 um, that, you know, his thought at the time was that if if you just focused on keeping, quote, your foot on the throttle, it would be liberating and funny. I know what I like. And one thing I definitely like is not knowing where a movie is going these days, though. It's hard to get audiences to give themselves over, unquote. So it feels like it's very it's like. And we've had this conversation on Film Trace over and over again about like the 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 lasting impact or the rewatchability of a film several years later, um, compared to when it first came out. It's still got that 
like throttled to it. Like I was not yeah. bored once, even rewatching it, knowing every twist and turn along the way. And yet you're right, Dan. Like I, uh, if I had empathy, it was more towards the sporting cast. Like I, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I despise Sean Penn, but he does give a really fun uh, little kind of, you know, admittedly two dimensional, but at least like engaging and contrasting um, performance as both the Conrad that uh, is authentic and the one that is, you know, part of being an actor in the game. Um, But then there's also Deborah Unger's Christine, which just feels is that's, is that's, that's part of like the, the film bro thing too, where it's like, how, how do we see any authenticity of her or is it, is it all manufactured Mm -hmm. all the way to the, to the end where they, you know, drive off together? Well, I mean, everybody's just that. I, I mean, I act, I mean, normally I'd just be like mad about it, but I think in this case, I don't know. I don't. I guess I look at it like, uh, it's just like fun. So, like, I don't need it to be super deep. Like, I do. Yeah. I, I guess I agree with Fincher in that point of like, I think he was trying to just, yeah, like see, like, what if I just made like this straight sort of plot-driven thriller, um. I mean, you know, like you said, he's just using like a, it's a Scrooge, you know, I'm sure something preceded Scrooge is like a, whatever Dickens was drawing from, I mean, you know, like I'm sure there's some sort of like Greek myth that also goes to that yeah. same core theme of whatever, um, hubris or I don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's just using that. We don't think that that, any of that stuff is less deep. It's just sort of like, you know, using that iconic sort of shell of a story and then just making something, whatever, like a genre film around it. So in this case, he was making a thriller, and it seems... So I feel like if that was his intended purpose, he, like, by all of our admission, he succeeded. Right. Um, so I don't even care. I mean, like, the... I don't think anybody's supposed to be a particularly um, dynamic character. They're all just in service of the plot, or in service of, again, here, the, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge um, plot function of Michael Douglas... Um, you know, whatever, having an existential awakening, a personal transformation at the end of not being, you know, a self-centered asshole, learning to appreciate life. So I don't actually, like, nobody's a particularly, it's all, mm-hmm. they're all just, like, plot function for, yeah. you know. One thing really. that, that stood out to me this time around, I think maybe especially because we're on the heels still a little bit of our previous theme, Dan, of self-aware horror. Yeah. And, like, it's, interesting that you know whether it's the the original screenwriters or fincher because he tinkered a lot with the script he changed conrad's character from a college friend to a younger brother changed uh um the ending it was supposed to be uh nicholas shooting christine but it changes it to him shooting conrad of this uh notion of like i mean essentially what michael douglas ends up signing himself up for and you could argue that subconsciously like he is signing up for because he's like looking for something to like, you know, something different in life, right? Something, you know, he, just when you think like the guy who has it all can't be entertained, he thinks, you know, on the off chance, you know, maybe my brother's right. This could uh, do something for me and he's bored anyway. So might as well go through with like the absurd long day of tests and interviews and what have you. Um, But my point here is that like, uh, and this was uh, actually analyzed by um, 
uh, an author for Little White Lies, which is one of my favorite recent uh, film analysis sites. Uh, Anton Biddle did an anniversary piece on the movie, and he said, as well as being about class structures, the game is also concerned with the artificial workings of cinema itself. For the people at CRS operate like a film crew, wrangling a large ensemble of actors and extras, coordinating set pieces, engaging in elaborate stunt work and special effects, and handling one narrative twist after another to lead to their very private audience right where they want him. So essentially, like, turning... It's it's interesting because the whole point on the surface level is, like, don't be a self-centered asshole. But what they have to do to get there is turn him literally into the main character of a story. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? So Turn like the protagonist into a, in a movie, yeah. Essentially, to make his life more learn exciting, not to be self-centered. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I read that little white lies, is it whatever, whatever the site is. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that piece too, and I was like, I felt it was a little bit of a stretch. It mm-hmm. felt a little. Do you, I mean that one of the points they bring up in there is like it's like a dissection of capitalism. I yeah, don't know the, if that's I, going on here. I, I stayed away if, from the class structure thing because I, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's <laughs> if that's really good. I think there's potential a lot there's a lot more potential for depth than like the psychoanalysis of the main character. Mm-hmm. Right? Like talk about like social structures and whatever, structuralism and stuff like that. I the Fincher doesn't seem like he's trying to hit that ball. Um but with the father stuff. I feel like we just graze along the fact that his father killed himself at 48. He's turning 48. It's in the background of everything. There's the ending moment where he chooses to jump just like his father. And those are all, I think, poignant points. But, like, there's not a lot of, like, development underneath that. Do you guys think that that's true or is that kind of... Not that it needed it, but I'm saying that there was a potential avenue to go a little bit deeper, I think. And it's, I mean, arguably sensationalism, right? To mm-hmm. to have that kind of parallelism, you know, including with like the wooden clown found in the parking in the driveway, uh, as if he had fallen, you know, jumped from the the roof like his father did. But yeah, it it, it felt like a lot of a lot of at least this time around, it still like worked on a surface level. But like, what what's the point? It what 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 are we trying to prove here that he's suicidal because that that feels like a that feels like a problematic read of (laughs) yeah but there's also like a potential like trying to like he never really i think he's haunted by his father's suicide because he doesn't know why he did it um but there's not really an exploration of him trying to discover exactly why that happened and by him essentially killing himself at the end is that really a sense of discovery? All he did is sort of live out his father's path right. before him. And the, right. So the, it's sort of like, how is that freeing? You just basically committed like the cycle. <laughs> yeah. How is that his greatest fear though? <laughs> <laughs> but in the end he, he commits. No, I don't think that it is either. We're, we're reaching. We're, well, but we're no, we're not reaching. We're not reaching. We're we're demonstrating the fact that, like, at the end of the day, as much as like the game has like a, I think a high status, right? Maybe among film bros or whoever, you know, 
Chris, what did you learn when you watched the when you delved deep into the Criterion <laughs> Edition? What made it Criterion Edition worthy? Uh, you know, and that what that's the thing. What did you discover? It's a the, double disc expiration. It's the only Criterion Edition for a Fincher film. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. He, didn't, he didn't believe me when I told him the game had a Criterion Edition. I'm like, oh, it does. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, I think. But what did you learn, Chris? <laughs> I I ultimately learned that like Fincher is uh, a you know a really difficult perfectionist to work with, but yeah. he does it because he wants everything technically flawless, and you know like means just ends justify the means. Oh, yeah. I get it. Right, I get it. but like I mean, you look at every piece of it from like the the Panavision lenses to the the you know intensely detailed storyboards of the um taxi into the water scene. Like, yeah, it sucks that it takes, uh, and I don't think the ends do justify the means, and yet you still like I still hate that I'm in awe of it. At the end of the day, there is like this pristine to it uh the director of photography harris savitas um who also this was his first work with fincher and he only worked with him one other time for zodiac which i think is another one of his like mm. more exquisitely shot films yeah. um and uh he also worked with sofia coppola and gus van sant but like savitas basically said you know that uh he's worked with all these directors and he feels like the only one that knew really how to shoot at nighttime was fincher and I think that's some, like something huge to say, he, you know, considering all the the names that Savitas has worked with through the years. Mm -hmm. um, he he went. I did write down this quote from uh, the Criterion uh, behind the scenes interviews. He said uh, that he felt like Fincher's vision, you know, not even like thinking anything about like narrative, character, whatever, just like visually, just as like as a photographer. Because that is his background, right? Like he was visual mm -hmm. effects on Return of the Jedi, and then he did lensing on, you know, music videos for Madonna. So like he, he felt this is Savitas's quote: "It quote if the light is beautiful and looks expensive, and it helps you believe the story more, then it will justify everything." To go right back <laughs> to Molly's point about the ends justifying the means, yeah. and like I hate that it that it. That, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's combination. But yeah, I mean that. Yeah, it looks. I mean, the thing about this movie that always keeps it in sort of the upper echelon is just the craftsmanship of it, mm -hmm. and it's tight. Um, the script, I think, is basically ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it doesn't really make any sense whatsoever, but that's okay because it doesn't need to make sense. It just feels like it's a ride. You're along for it. And Fincher admits that. It's the reason why he criticizes the last part of the film, because he realizes it didn't have an ending that made any sense. But <laughs> I don't know. I love that. But yeah, I think that's what I, kind yeah, of makes nobody it else has to. I love that the no, movie yeah. ends in like a giant glass ceiling ballroom with the world's largest inflatable <laughs> landing mat with everybody <laughs> dressed in like formal wear and Michael Douglas just like rose himself in like what that's <laughs> i cannot think of an ending that's like yeah. just like slightly more like what is even happening uh, my my favorite little detail is the like uh the voiceover of the walkie-talkie is like uh uh be careful sir it's breakaway glass but it can still cut you 
And then like debriefing afterwards when he like (laughs) when he comes in they're like, Yeah, I don't know, man. We weren't sure if you were gonna jump. I was like, What? what Yeah. I had to push I was gonna push you. (laughs) I was like, so I would like to know the crew's like their the games the game crew's backup plan, like if he didn't if he didn't decide. Well, well she says that jump. she was supposed to push him off, or he was someone supposed to push him off. Right, yeah. James Redhorn's character, yeah, yeah. And we, I mean, th- we, go ahead. That was a point of contention um, during rough cuts of the film because uh, Fincher co-produced it um, himself with uh, his the co-founder um, of uh, Propaganda Films, and uh, what's his name, Scott something, and he. Uh, was basically doing the tug of war with Fincher, but then also kind of being like going, I mean, this is all just Hollywood hearsay. So who knows what the actual communication issue was, or if it's just gossip, but he was basically the main, (laughs) the main line of communication with uh, polygram. Um, My source is um, (laughs) the, well, there's that LA times profile profile of Fincher that came out in 97 when the game was released, but then also a uh, oral history of uh, polygram, which I revisited oh. because I did that whole video essay. Yeah. So this is, polygram. Yeah. this is, <laughs> this is making me want to go and do this, the, the part two of that. Cause man, the polygram years are crazy. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, uh, Golan, Steve Golan, not Scott, uh, who was the co-founder of propaganda films, Fincher's company. He, uh, was get like throwing his hands up in the air, especially with the game. Like he had already done it with seven because that went over budget. And now the game, which he knew would not like, didn't have the star power of yeah. Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Um, you know, it, it was very much, um, you know, originally it was going to be, uh, um, uh, uh, Kyle McLaughlin in the lead role. Uh, yeah. and, uh, that then things got all messed up because Brad Pitt's schedule opened up. They sat on the game for a while. Anyway, so when they revisited the game, like Fincher wanted to blow up the budget even more because mm-hmm. Seven was a you know re- decent hit. But then you know Golan didn't want to make the budget blow up too much, and so he uh, he says in this profile, um, and he it's really funny because he says it like equal parts uh, insult and compliment. He says. Uh, there's a part of that Douglas character that David really relates to. Um, you have to be careful with David. You're going to always have your hands full with him. He's very clever and manipulative. He's also anal and fastidious, which can be incredibly infuriating. If you came into his office and played with something on his desk and didn't put it back in precisely the right place, he'd go nuts and have to move it to the exact spot where it was originally. So I couldn't talk directly to him when I was dealing with the guys at Polygram who distributed the film and very much had, you know, probably points in the game. Um, and so then uh when the rough cuts uh started coming back uh polygram execs had all these questions about the plot mechanics (laughs) just like it makes no sense it's completely no it doesn't they so they suggested that they do Mm -hmm. some reshoots and some additional shoots of um uh like behind the scenes at crs to quote see more of what was going on no, um, that's a mistake. Yeah, exactly. But like Fincher fought back on it, and somehow he wound up he go end up going to this meeting with Polygram, having the goal of saying do these uh, do these additional shoots to like give more information about how the game works, yeah. and and not only did they walk out of that meeting with Fincher not having to do that, 
But Fincher walked out of the meeting to with more money to buy more expensive lenses to do reshoots on the nighttime scenes that he wanted. <laughs> Which, and, you know, I think that tracks yeah. with his overall attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting, though, is that I think he was wrong, right? Mm-hmm. When you look at the performance of this movie and how it did, we talk about it in like this, oh, it's amazing, it's cool, it's interesting, it's an important film from the time period, but, like, it costs $70 million, mm-hmm. right? Took it 109 so it lost money. Even on video and DVD and all that kind of stuff, it's not going to make a lot of cash. So it's like, you know, was there, I mean, thinking just from like the polygrams perspective and the business perspective, was there a way to dumb this thing down a bit more or make it a little bit more grounded to have it be a more mass appeal film? Or does that ruin the whole thing? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I'm, I side with Molly. I think that you do anything more to, to, over explain this ridiculousness and then you be you lose like the sheen of it and you lose like the prestige quality of it and yet and i don't think that really would have mattered at the end of the day box office wise someone's agreeing (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean i don't see how you would have the it's i feel like it's just like it's crazy anyways so like you you have to commit. It would have just been a mess. Like, I feel like it would have been messier. Yeah. Like, it definitely would have been one of those movies where you're like, what did I feel that way about? Uh, something recently, but um, Woman in the Window is a great example. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, there was like a totally different movie here. But somebody like <laughs> chopped the crap <laughs> out of it and made it like an incoherent mess. Yeah. You know, it like even worse, even like I can... Sometimes when I watch movies, like that's when I can think. Of, I know there's like a more recent one. Yeah. Um, oh, oh I feel like Deep Water Deep about water, that too, yeah. where I was like, somebody chopped this, like where there was a different movie in right. there. But it's like when you get, which I feel like is a lot of directors and stuff will often say that too. I mean, that's pretty notorious. Where it's like, if you don't have, if you have too many cooks in the kitchen, if you have too many different yeah. like producers yeah. or studios trying to exert different arbitrary creative perspectives you know or just like oh this especially the this doesn't make sense thing um you know i think at some point you have to with most films you just have to be like we have to like trust that this is just whatever experience and the audience is going to get out of it what they're going to get out of it you can't Mm -hmm. anyway so i do think with the game structurally if you tried to I'm sure you could make small tweaks. I don't know. I'm sure Fincher could recut a different version of it and fix his ending or whatever he thought he wished he would have done instead. Um, But yeah, I think if you over, I think it could have just been a mess. So I don't know. I always, I felt like when we were watching it, I re I said, I actually thought he did a pretty decent job of like having a balance between like, I don't know. There was fantastical things. Like obviously like I think the newscaster cheat is like a great one where it's like it's supposed to feel like a hallucination or sort mm. of like magical realism where you're like this is this really happening but then there's definitely like things where i remember when they go into the uh they're like in an ambulance and um being chased into like the hospital in the underground parking lot um that is like an emergency room exterior but then you know, all the lights got and everybody disappears and then they're in a parking garage. Like that was where I'm like, Oh, this is staged in a way where this feels feasible. 
I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it felt like I was like, oh, this is grounded in reality. They aren't in like an actual hospital that then empties out. You're, it's very clear that it's a stage and it yeah. looks like something that like conceivably is grounded in Michael Douglas's reality. So I don't know. And, like I thought he did a decent job. <laughs> and I mean, the, I think there, I forget who it was. Somebody like calling it essentially uh Christmas Carol meets uh mission impossible. Yeah. But where like part of the purpose, like it's such an ingenious conceit to marry those two ideas together because it is very believable that somebody like Nicholas Van Orton would be like not aware enough of his environment because he's so like stuck in his routine and isolationist and like stuck in his head, always thinking about, you know, bottom dollar coming home to Ilsa. Like you, I would buy that. He would not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where it's just like, it's just like that. That comfort, right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Where it's like he would have so much adrenaline pumping that he wouldn't realize that, like, the fire extinguisher and the ambulance is fake or anything like that. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, it's just, (laughs) yeah, it's a ride. I mean, we're, go ahead. Oh, all I was going to say is crazy was going back to the numbers thing because I was just looking this up because I was curious. And this movie made more than Fight Club. Did it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. just a few million more, but yeah, the I box mean, office for Right Club was only like 101 million. So, how does Fincher still keep getting? Consigned? I know, it's crazy. Well, actually, like everything, I mean, Panic Room, which I think is a stupid. Talk about like another movie I feel like that's probably closest to like what he did here was like Panic Room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Panic Room, I don't even ever think about that. So, that no. to me is a testament <laughs> of the game of like that there's value in just like doing, you know, just kind of balls to the wall randomness right, sometimes right. or it's like i don't know this should work but that's i i often feel yeah. like is the best use of all these these film bro directors because i think what it, my argument is is their through line quality is that they're all very technically talented like they have a lot of um they have a strong visual style right and they have a lot of like you were like you were rap like uh going on and on about about like Fincher's technical skills and photography skills and other quoting other men talking about how he's <laughs> has all these skills, which is, I think is true. Like that's the same with Nolan. It's the same with a lot of these guys. It's like why they're, they sort of occupy that category and why, you know, I enjoy watching stuff that they make because it's mm. very well done. It's very visually compelling. It's very, you know, whatever. And then they, but yeah, I don't know. Panic Room is very forgetful to me too, yes, which I feel like yeah. is probably the most similar thing to the game in a way. Cause it's just like him being like, I'm going to make this very sort of small cast, like uh, narrow conceit um, thriller kind of film, you know? And mm-hmm. but anyways, Panic Room made almost hundred million more. Than the game. Ooh, <laughs> right. Yeah. That Leto factor. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because like, yeah, it's the classic. It's also the classic case of the film bro that somehow keeps being able to make movies that uh, add to their like cultural cachet, but don't actually have much of any return box office wise. Like just looking overall at the 1997 box office, the game was number 42 on the list behind right behind speed Two cruise control. Nice. So <laughs> it, it, it's, I mean, and yet and it still was a, a number one. It's opening weekend um, against, you know, no Ooh, other new movies, but G.I. Jane in its ton. fourth week. 
Yeah. yeah. And fire down below the Steven Seagal movie in its second week. So like it, it, I, I can't imagine a scenario or an alternate script or a changed ending that would have resulted in much of any different financial performance, but it would have essentially been like, I, I, who knows if he would have gone on to fight club if he had made, yeah. you know, a bunch of concessions and decided to, you know, be a, com- a studio guy. Like he, he said straight out, you know, in that LA times profile that, uh, his experiences trying to work within the world of the alien franchise and please the exact 20th century Fox, like that he was never going to like return to that kind of wheelhouse again. Yeah. So he would never cede control again. That's what he yeah. told the Rolling Stone. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and he did not. <laughs> right. Uh, let's talk about insomnia now. Yes. So please. I think if we all agree that the game is a masterful genre film, <laughs> can we agree to that masterful <laughs> genre film what would we call insomnia or i think what we're gonna have to ask is what went wrong with insomnia where it doesn't really seem to meet the level of the game it's not fun i mean the game's yeah. fun it's enjoyable it's a ride insomnia feels like a root canal i don't know what would you guys <laughs> think that's my initial take on it <sighs> well I think have I have to I have to start. Have you either of you seen the the Norwegian movie that it's based on? No, but I read the plot and it sounds way better. It is. It's yeah. so much better. Uh, and to go back to Criterion, like I've got the Criterion edition of the of the ninety seven Norwegian film, and like I had not. I have once again. I hadn't seen Insomnia. How many Criterions do you own, Chris? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Um, Oh, that's what the space is for. Yeah, it's a safe space. <laughs> no, it's not I a know. safe space, but it's what the space is for. <laughs> this side of your, your... Um, this is like but a it's public space. It's, a it's quite public. <laughs> um, the the biggest thing that I hadn't realized because I hadn't seen the the American Insomnia since uh, it was in theaters was that there's just like there's something about like that. Uh, Scandinavian um, like cinema style that k- lends itself to that super serious, mm-hmm. dark, brooding atmospherics that I don't know. I can't think of an American director. Like every time I think like another of another filmmaker that could pull that kind of thing off, it's somebody also who's not American. So it just yeah. feels like it was like a bad idea from the beginning. And yet like, I don't know. I actually kind of liked it this time around. <laughs> well, Molly, I want to know your take because we watched this last night. Yeah. Another critic take. No. <laughs> uh, or rewatched it because we've both seen it before. Well, I want to yeah. actually, I mean, I'll say it. I want to hear what Chris liked it first. About, uh, Chris, tell us why you'd like it. Give us your also, counterpoint. Uh, what did you think of David Fincher's Girl with Dragon Tattoo? Oh, gosh. That's an American uh, director doing a cold stain game that's, remake. That's a really good uh, uh, parallel. I think that. Um, I mean, I just don't like the the whatever you call that series. Not what I'm the, asking. The Stig Larsson. Um, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so why did but you like Insomnia this time? I liked. I think there's a uh, a lens to it that I did not get in 2002. And most of it has to do with Pacino and Williams. 
And okay. that, that was largely the critical response at the time. And I remember not really understanding why people were so enamored with their performances, but I really liked them this time. I think they're kind of, uh, um, it's like, uh, in, to find the, the similarity with the game, it's a subtle kind of batshit. Yeah. I mean, I, I can replay the, you know, naked body wrapped in garbage bags clip over and over again. Cause it's silly, but there is this level of, uh, kind of absurd commitment. And was this, this is before one hour photo, right? Is this like, uh, it's, like concur- it's like right around then, right? Right around that same time. But like yeah. William's like going dark. It's very strange. Um, he told his agent, bring me, a su- I want a super serious villain role. And then he did like three of them, like within like three <laughs> right. it's, very, it's quite strange. Oh, Death is Smoochie. Is that the other one? Yeah, I guess that's a yeah. little bit more random. But yeah, one hour photo and this are very similar. And so right. it's like very, in terms of like the sort of, it, it feels weird. It feels like he was like, one of these won't happen. So I'll do both or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cover your know. bases. But like, yeah, it w- I just found those, both those performances really magnetic this time whereas when i saw it at you know 18 or whatever it really felt like i remember seeing it in a for a matinee and it just like my memory of it dissipating pretty quickly but i also remember being super hyped up because you know it was all about seeing the follow-up from the memento guy so yeah i don't know um uh, yeah, I can tell you why it doesn't work for me. I mean, yeah. in ways that maybe just, uh, you know, the Danish version works or just other movies that sort of take on, yeah, like somebody's sort of like existential descent into whatever they're kind of going through. Um, it's specifically because... Uh, they frame Pacino's descent as this lens of like the whole thing, the whole thing uh, from the beginning to the end is framed around this idea of like, uh, again, ends justifying means cops being good, bad, <laughs> losing your way. It's yeah. all framed very much as like this cop identity thing. And yeah. um, this idea of, and like, that's how his descent is framed is not that he sort of is, you know, it's kind of like an interesting sort of breaking point of somebody from something from like a very like personal existential crisis. Like I feel like in the Danish one, like the precursors and like internal affairs, they're going to blow up all of my investigations. <laughs> I did what I had to do to keep these dirtbags off the streets. It's like, oops, I <laughs> fucked somebody. I wasn't supposed yes, to yes, exactly. I got in trouble and I shouldn't have done that. And like, it's like this moral gray area, but like, it's like a personal sort of like fuck up. And like, mm. that's what it's framed around. And it's just sort of like a lot more, you know, like just a person, it is truly like a personal, and it's not framed like with Al Pacino. It's all about his crisis is, you know, whatever, like losing his way because he stepped a little too far into like doing what he thought needed to be done to keep those guys off the streets. And at the end, I wanted to vomit in a bag when he, at the end, when he was like that, I hate that ending where he's like, to Hillary Swank's character, he's like, "Do lose your way." Do lose your way. Yeah, it's the worst. It's the worst. And I'm like, "Gross!" Again, too. It's just the whole the whole thing doesn't work for me in that. Like, again, sure, there's some fun stuff, but I also 
yeah, that that particular piece, again, if we're talking about existential thriller, like existential stuff like that, if this is supposed to be in that genre, it does not work for me at all because of that, because it's just a gross, like, lame, you know, cops do what they got to do. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Story. Sometimes you don't have to play by the rules. Yeah, yeah but don't lose your way, Hillary Swink, like <laughs> I did. But you understand <laughs> that ultimately she gets, like, she affirms that he's a good guy, like, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mistakes. You've lost your way. But he's like, yeah, don't, don't go too far. I'm like, I... yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, there was that like classic procedural trope to, uh, that they're trying to like do a full circle thing with at that ending. But like at the beginning, I just like, I almost choked on my water. I was laughing because I was so surprised by the, like her having done a bunch of research on her, on uh Pacino's, murder cases from los angeles like that's a thing that like cops in rural areas do is they like follow the cases of the cops that are in more urban areas like they're celebrities or something like that whole it's just like that 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 really unfortunate american take on the cop genre that is yeah like you said is not a part of the scandinavian version at all and you have, but you, I don't know. I was entertained by it at least. Whereas uh, I think that the, the kind of, there was a levity there that maybe was, uh, was accidental um, that felt enjoyable to me, even though, yes, I agree. Uh, at the end of the day, it's so silly that we're like supposed to um, empathize even if we're kind of not, I don't know. That's it, it. It almost went there where it's like, he has a realization that nothing that he did was okay. Uh, and that maybe he did mean to kill his partner, but yeah, it's, I it's, just it's felt so like that hazy. Was more like sleep and do psycho. Like sure. Right. And that's supposed to be part of the whole story. And that's what I'm saying. I think that like etherealness ends it to like, and again, a personal existential crisis. His, he doesn't, if he was going to have an existential crisis about the role of cops in general, like if you were actually yeah, going to yeah, do yeah. that, that's to me where it would have. So like, I see your point of like, I think if you look at this as like a, it, sure, it could work as like a mediocre to like, okay, or like fine, like procedural is just like a cop thing. But like, yeah, sort of any sort of deeper, I, for me, mm. it didn't really work though i see you know petrina was yeah. trying to do something well i thought i thought it was funny that like it has like almost like universal acclaim right right for critics. that's a good question like, if you look at the critic stuff yeah for this it's like there... it's high it's like 90s on like oh, is it man websites for there, things, there's right? one there's Medicare one negative is? review one? Yeah, it's one of yes. the other one uh Rotten tomatoes yeah but i feel like there's a third one. <laughs> oh yeah there's <laughs> oh letterbox I don't letterbox know. come on letterbox, letterbox. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah i mean it's it's nolan so like there's no bad scores um but there is one really (laughs) entertaining uh negative review from michael strago who would go on to village voice um but he was at the baltimore sun at the time and he says uh quote but nolan pushes the twilight zone atmosphere so hard that it loses its capacity for mystery when it's not assaulting us with jolting audiovisual expressions of fatigue this movie plays like a pedestrian response to david lynch's effortlessly eerie twin peaks and i got the peaks vibes but i also got the vibes of a movie we did uh an episode on earlier this year dan the little things do you recall that 
Oh my god! <laughs> Is that that uh, rando movie we did? Like, yeah, yeah, Denzel Stalker and thing? and let and Leto once again. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, this movie. I, what blows my mind about this movie is it doesn't feel like it's done by Christopher Nolan. Does that? I, I, I where do we see his <laughs> fingerprints here? The the visual I, I motif. Yeah, I was I gonna do. say yes, which is the strongest thing for the visual motif. I think there's some like, yeah. I mean, but again, okay. I'm listening. What makes? Um, <laughs> I'm judging, but I'm listening. <laughs> well, no, because I actually think again, especially in retrospect too, like. Uh, he, this is very he he likes doing this weird like or he gets into it after this of like big budget movies and then he does again kind of random mediocre um, right. why can't I think of it the Christian Bale uh, allu- Prestige. Not- Prestige thank you I was like uh, going to call it the illusionist but it's not now you see me is that right <laughs> oh you're welcome for that one greatest <laughs> gift I ever gave you guys um <laughs> Introducing you to American <laughs> classic. Now you see me. Um, yeah, I feel like it's. It feels in so much as I don't know. It does. I, I watch Memento and I watch this, and it feels they both feel very Nolan to me. Like if, yeah. I don't think it feels like oh, these are two different directors. The way the sort of pacing, yeah, and the visual style, the visual motifs, the sort of you know. The and honestly, that's like he just yeah. I don't know. Like I'm saying, what makes this any more than like. Besides, like, the David Bowie part, maybe, <laughs> the prestige that has, like, a weird, crazy set piece, but... Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's yeah. that's one of the things that actually felt refreshing to me after having both revisited a lot of Nolan movies and then trying to, like, wrestle and pick apart and understand Tenet uh, most recently, where it's, like, I, I almost enjoyed that kind of, like, come down of energy... And being and there being so much focus on the performance, and I think that's kind of where he he did have a nice balance of like working with somebody like Guy Pierce, who wasn't a huge star at the time for Memento, but then he uh, takes on like this smaller ad- adaptation story where he can look at it more as a director rather than as like a you know writer director uh, filmmaker whole package thing which has kind of become his thing over the past 20 years um but he still did like he did 25 day shoot for memento he did 54 for insomnia even though it doesn't feel like it it feels very slight it's in Mm -hmm. british columbia he didn't actually go to alaska like he's doing a lot of shortcuts that uh, like well, I don't think like Fincher would have ever done. Quotient for people in that small town is too hot. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I feel like yes. Nikki Katz, Nikki Katz, oh Jawline, Maura Tierney. <laughs> like you know, what I mean? there's like a one too many where I was like, ooh, the mix is not right. right. You got to Maura Tierney's. Like I know that she's a character actor, but she that was that was too small of a role for her, right? Oh, I, don't I think, think so in the... the time 2002 probably. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah, because she her big. Um, the TV, right? ER, ER like it was that, TV. and yeah, she was okay. always so. No, I feel like it probably it it, it wasn't necessarily in two thousand two, but okay. okay. So have you seen it yet? Everyone go watch. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's available on streaming. <laughs> <laughs> and his uh, ever changing mustache. Did we notice that? I'm pretty sure uh, it's fake. I think I decided yeah. to stick okay. on mustache. Really, like it just looked. There was something off about it. We talked There's about something this. weird. So, so weird. Ethereal. Uh, yeah. But how do but we I, oh, go ahead? 
I was just, yeah, I mean, I think I'm trying to wrap up like you are. I think ultimately I was kind of surprised that even though both movies are lacking, um, I, my opinion of the game went a couple ticks down and my opinion of Insomnia went a couple ticks up. Mine kind of stayed the same. Like, I think yeah. that like, no, actually my opinion of the game went down a little bit because, you know, I like some sort of semblance of sense or naturalism to a film. There's just none in that. Uh, so like it can't to me. And also if you are going to go that route, you have to say something profound and he doesn't say anything profound, but technically visually it's a, an awesome, an awesome film. Insomnia. I just, I can't stand the movie. Um, <laughs> I think it sucks. I still like the game. Yeah, the game is no, fun. no, no. I just, I just, yeah. Like for me, it's just, it's still just fun. And, and that's like, that, I don't know. It feels like, I, yeah. Anyway, so I still my my I tick I ticked the same. I don't know. This is <laughs> tick the same. Guys, All right. Uh, for the game, and I think I'm the same for Insomnia too. But I also rewatched it recently already because mm-hmm. I think. I rewatched we watched Memento. I rewatched a couple Nolan films when we talked about Memento last year. But uh, I think my the re this time when I was watching it, I mean, I think I already had that, but I crystallized like specifically why I was like, this doesn't work. And it's like the weird, like non existential, like just boring ass, moralistic, like yeah. cup, cup framing. <laughs> like again, would have been interesting yeah. if he actually was like existentially questioning like mm-hmm. the function and purpose of cops <laughs> and the institution right. of the police if that's what his spiral right. is about but it was just like maybe i just went a little too far yeah right. but audience you understand why the, i had yeah, to yeah it's justice <laughs> yeah like that <laughs> crystallized me where i just crystallized my annoyance <laughs> yes 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 i mean that's that's uh kind of how this is what we're wrestling with for this whole theme i think i'm kind of realizing with these movies is like your ch- the the existential thriller is constantly doing battle where it's trying to like be thrilling and exciting but also look inward and it's almost yeah. always going to fail in one of those aspects. Well, we'll see. We'll see as we get through the series. <laughs> Maybe there's a winner among this crop we'll of what, 12 we'll films are doing Michael Clayton starting out. There. <laughs> yes, preview yes. or post preview, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing that one. Yeah. Oh, it, it'll be interesting. There's lots of lots of ones we're revisiting. Um, we're recording this episode before Alex Garland's Men comes out. Um, and we're also going to look back at The Killing of a Sacred Deer to, to talk about uh, European directors. Nice. So we'll see. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Molly, so much for having us, uh, for us having you. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> what the fuck? Me. Thank you. I've enjoyed this fancy microphone wiper has that I can... Just really talk like that. That's the one all the podcasters have. Yeah. Well, ASMR. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. This has been Film Trace. We'll catch you back next episode.